You are listening to CivCast on the Kyle Dempster Studios Network. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash CivCast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of CivCast. My name is Kyle, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Dan. Hello, Dan. What's up? What's up, Kyle? How you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, it's finally stopped snowing out here, and I'm back in, uh, I was going to say sunny Vancouver, but it's, it's still freezing cold, so the sun is kind of artificial. Ah, yes. Uh, we have been in a rainy patch here in, in sunny Los Angeles. It's actually sunny today for a little bit, but um, we've been having our, our winter finally catch up with us, where it's like somewhere between 40 and 50. I know, super cold, everyone. It's, it's so, so cold uh, and, and rainy. But So I can't complain much, but um, we're finally getting through it, I guess, or at least having a momentary respite. Um, Winter sucks, man. Yeah, we're going to have more to talk about that in just a minute. But first, Dan, how about you tell me what you've been up to in Civ Six this week? Have you played anything interesting, any new games you want to talk to us about? Yeah, I actually started a, a, a really fun game with Arabia, which is a sieve that um, I well, I hadn't tried, but I saw often in the game. Like I felt like virtually every single game uh, that I was starting, I would see Arabia in some form or fashion. And so I thought, you know, when I was wanting to roll something this week, um, that I'd try something new. And I'm not the kind of guy, I mean, I've never been the kind of sieve guy who gravitates towards... Um, the kind of ancient militaristic sieves mm -hmm. a la your Gilgamesh or your Gorgo um, or even really your Congo. Um, although I do love Scythia in this game. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I started one with Arabia um, and I knew right away based on their obvious bonuses that um, I wouldn't have to rush uh, faith in the beginning because mm -hmm. I'd get that great, that great profit anyway. And uh, conveniently enough, I ended up finding two religious city-states on my doorstep and the Philosopher's Stone Relic, which gave me plus four faith per turn. So I actually got the Great Prophet anyway without, wow. any, kind of, uh, without any kind of effort. I think I got, it's an eight-person game, I think I got like the fourth Great Prophet. So I fluked into it in the one you know situation or time when I, I actually didn't need it or wasn't trying to get it. So wow. lucky me, but they're fun. I've had a lot of fun with them so far. Um, I'm... Uh, the renaissance era right now i've uh made friends with congo on my doorstep they uh -huh. love that i'm spreading religion um actively and willingly to their doorstep and uh they're <laughs> at war with france right now france is just north of them but uh i'm able to kind of play a, a bit of a peaceful three city uh science-based game which i'm having a lot of fun with and uh I, i've learned a fair amount actually with this game so it's been good I'm sure. Yeah, it's always fun to play some of these new ones. That's awesome you're getting out there and exploring. Um, good that you're spreading that religion to the Congo. I'm sure that they love it since they can't make their own. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really digging their song on the soundtrack. I don't know if you've listened to the... I don't know how much you've you know spent with the soundtrack or anything like that, but the Congo's medieval theme is one that gets caught in my head very, very often. And uh, just want to throw that out there that I'm really digging it. 
Uh, for myself this week, this is going to be, uh, we're going to spend a couple minutes on this, talking about this at the beginning of the show. I've had a very limited schedule this week to play anything. First of all, Golden Globes here in Los Angeles, so busy, busy, busy time for all of us. I did get some time to play China. Uh, last week when we were on the show, we were talking about YouTube streaming and how I was going to try and do a lot more of that. And I think you and I departed me saying, uh, yo, yeah, I'm going to go and do a game of China right now and go stream it. Lo and behold, Dan, I went to try and stream this game of China. And where my streaming setup had been working fine the day before with no noticeable issues on my end, YouTube started kicking back all these errors at me saying that my stream health was bad, which for anyone that's not familiar with streaming, that just means that something's getting in the way, something is not happening as it should be, you're probably going to have low stream quality. So you get a lot of dropped frames, which equates to very stuttery video, um, also potentially some really stuttery audio and a very crummy viewing experience overall. So I'm in a, a weird transition phase where I'm trying to figure out why that's happening. Um, I don't know why it would have worked fine the day before and then cause all kinds of issues the next when I didn't get in there and tweak anything under the hood, but that's where we are. I think that the next call would be to the internet provider to see if they have anything going on on their end, but Dan... I'm here to talk to the people about something that you and I talked about very briefly in passing, so feel free to ask any and all questions that you might have. But um, at the end of this month, I've made a very difficult decision that I'm going to travel back to Pennsylvania. Um, I've been out here in Los Angeles for the past two years. Before that, I stayed out here for about um, a summer, about four months or so, to do an internship in L.A. Now, at this point, I'm going back to try to get closer to family, get closer to people that are doing a lot of the things that I like to do. Um, you know, some of my family's into some video work, and my friends are very into computers, and, and I kind of lost that coming out here. I lost that, um, that you know, those, those bonds. And L.A. is one expensive city. Um, it's actually very... Oh, it's climbing those, like, charts to become one of the, like, most expensive cities in the world, um, which makes me kind of look at what I'm doing, you know, and what I'm getting passion mm -hmm. out of podcasting here. And mm -hmm. saying, oh, my God, you know, I could podcast from uh, a shed in Alaska if it saved money. You know what I mean? Like, I could podcast okay. from anywhere. I just need internet, electricity, and some cheap rent, and I could do it. Um, so this is a change for the good. Um, it's, a, it's something... I'm 50-50 on it. There's there's beautiful things about California. It will always have a place in my heart and be a home of mine. You know, the weather here is great. I love the people here. There's a lot to love, but there's also a lot to love and take advantage of in Pennsylvania. And, you know, you can't – that argument is hard to beat when you say, I've got happy, healthy family that are, you know, alive and well right now. How can I be across the world doing something that, you know, isn't fulfilling me on every level and have that separation and stuff? So it's just a lot. Um, but my real hope is move back home to that area. There's way cheaper apartments for much larger space. And I could actually get a podcasting studio set up in an apartment and really devote money and time and energy to it. Whereas in LA here, I'm a bit uh, pushed to my limit and past it on the weekends. So, um, you know, anytime that I'm a little bit slow to get back to things or, you know, can't always devote that energy... That's really what I want to change, and I want to be someone that's, you know, YouTubing a lot more than I am now, so, you know, lots of, lots of changes, Dan. 
You know, you mentioned the weather, and here I am sitting watching the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, home playoff game right now, and I, I it looks so cold that I don't think that people can functionally move. It, it looks it looks absolutely freezing. So, although it does sound like you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of positives for moving back, I wouldn't assume that weather would be one of them, my friend. It's really not. Um, Pennsylvania, <laughs> uh, specifically like the Pittsburgh area, apparently last time I checked, I did this as a joke for one of my friends, had more rainfall than Seattle, Washington. Which you know, if you're in the United States or surrounding areas, that's kind of a stereotypical joke that Seattle has the most rain all the time. But Pennsylvania beats them by a couple inches per year. Wow. Um, I'm in I'm in surrounding areas and very sure. close to surrounding areas of Seattle, and I can corroborate that the Pacific Northwest is uh, it's it's a rainforest. It is it is yeah. absolutely the North American rainforest. So to hear that Pittsburgh rains more than here is oh God, man! Like that that is. Uh, that's not a lot of fun. I'll, I'll, no. I'll tell you that. And I can't make any promises to anyone at, that, that that will be my forever move. Um, you know, for anyone that's out there listening, I am 25 and I've been you know, working in entertainment PR for the past two years and it's been an amazing experience. It's actually taught me a lot about podcasting because I've got to sit in on like Nerdist podcasts with some of our clients and stuff like that. Like I've had great opportunities out here to, you know, get to meet some cool people and, and to learn how professionals really do this stuff. Um, so that's something that I will never, you know, be regretful of having done. Like it's awesome and I wouldn't trade it for the world. But it is one of those things where, you know, yeah, it has sucky weather, but if I'm really trying to devote my energy and time into this podcasting video gaming space, it's something I've really had to put on the back burner being out here. And I really don't think that's my, what I wear, where I want to be going at the end of all of this. You know, I, I my passion is to devote more time to this hobby, to follow out whatever, wherever this takes me. So I think I just need to find a place that better accommodates that want. Well, fair enough. And there's no place like home. That's true. It's true. Um, and and so, yeah, we're actually going to try and build a legitimate podcasting studio there with um, some like, actual sound dampening stuff and hopefully some green screen areas to do some more videos, things for YouTube, all that great stuff. Um, so, you know, it's a hope. It's an aspiration. It's something to do. And honestly, it's one of the scariest decisions I can make, which... Um, feels like the right thing to do. I've always been a like a fear chaser in that way. It's like if I think it's too big of a challenge to to undertake, then it's probably the right challenge for me to go towards. So, uh we'll see where this goes. Good I, luck, man. You're going to be just fine. I mean, it, as long as you've got family around and you've got all your pad, podcasts and equipment there, you will be just fine. Indeed. I did I did 23 years of it, so I think I can handle a couple more. Um, for histor historically inclined people, I will be going back to George Washington's trail. So um, I'll be going back to all the uh, the French and Indian war battlefields. That's that's in my region. So cool. there's some cool history there that I really like. And I want to do a live shout out here right in the middle of the show. We had David just pledge money to our Patreon. So I want to give him a, an on the air shout out and a thank you for going ahead and doing that. We really appreciate it. And we'll use this. Um, I, I literally just got this notification now. 
Um, so it's a perfect time to plug it on the show to say, hey, guys, if you do want to contribute some money, uh, you can head over to patreon.com backslash Civcast. That's where you can give. And we've got some cool reward tiers that we're always working on. And see, this is what I want to have more time to do is to, you know, really flesh out Patreon and come up with some cool ideas and you know, I know some local business people that would be able to help print things if we want to get into maybe doing shirts or posters or, you know, anything in the future, any sort of merchandising. It would be cool to uh, have that network. So big thanks to you, uh, David, for going and contributing that money. We love it. We love it. It helps us a ton. Thank you for the support. Uh, but let's let's dive into this, Dan. We've been we've been beating around the bush. We're gonna keep this episode a little bit shorter than usual. So let's maybe go in and tackle our Civcast challenge updates before we get into some amazing listener feedback we got this week. Sure. So we had uh, three gentlemen who uh, submitted to us via Twitter their results from the Civcast challenge, and uh, they they use the hashtag Civcast challenge, which is fantastic because that's how we track it. So if you completed it, and I'm not giving you a shout out today, that's probably because you didn't include the hashtag. So make sure next time um, you include it. And if you have done it, and you want some recognition for it, um, just you can go back and apply the hashtag now, and we'll give you a shout out next episode. That being said. Um, Frequent contributor to the show and a guy who I think actually sent in a piece of listener feedback this week, Gus. Mm -hmm. And Gus's Twitter is at uh, G-U-Z underscore A-M-A-D-O. Gus uh, submitted to us his uh, completed Civcast challenge. The quote that he gave us in the tweet is at Civcast, quote, felt like a marathon conquering all those seven other Civs, but finally finished the Civcast challenge on turn 422. So he went the domination route by the looks of it. Um, which is certainly the, what should we say, the road less traveled here and the road of most attrition, I think. Yeah. Um, And I'm taking a look at some of the pictures he submitted, and it looks like he completed his uh, game with his final conquest in, uh, well, it looks like actually in, because it was a planet Earth map, it looks like the last Civ he had to conquer was Germany, and it looks as though Germany was positioned in the continental eastern United States and Canada. So he managed to... uh, to bring them down alongside Japan, Russia, the Aztecs, the Spanish, the Brazilians, wow. and who's got, who's the tree? Arabia. That's right. Yep. Um, he brought all eight of that, or well, I guess all seven of them down by turn 422 and was victorious with a domination uh, victory. So congrats to Gus. Well done, my friend. We got two uh, other Civcast Challenge completion submissions, mm-hmm. um, both of whom completed it on a uh, religious victory type. We will start with uh, a new contributor. I believe he's a new contributor. His name's David uh, at Wimbledog. Uh, David's tweet to us was last minute religious win for Poland on turn 300 of the Civcast challenge. America turned out to be a non-profit organization. So some uh, cringe worthy <laughs> puns, David, we always appreciate that, but uh, well done. It looks like his, uh, his, Polish empire spanned kind of what looks like uh, continental Europe. Um, and it looks like he conquered large parts of Japan. It looks like Japan was kind of positioned in what's Eastern Europe. Um, and one other thing he, uh, oh no, this is the other guy who shared that, but David did share that he uh, managed to convert all of the civs to Catholicism. Ooh. So a historically, historically appropriate civ cast challenge. Mm-hmm. So props for that, my friend. So well done, David on turn 300. The victor of the Civcast Challenge for this time around, though, uh, contributor, 
And he, uh, oh, I, didn't I lost see you when you said that, Dan. Could oh, you repeat that? Sorry. Um, he is, uh, he's also uh, a new contributor to the Civcast challenge. Um, his name is just his Twitter handle, and his Twitter handle is at Zoom WSU. Um, he submitted to us saying, uh, at Civcast, beat the Civcast challenge with a religious victory on turn 284. Now the whole world has, quote, crabs for Christmas. And Can- I was, I was curious about that, <laughs> Kyle. I don't know if you saw his tweet, but... I- did and I would like to add that I um I I actually laughed out loud a bit when I first read that. Uh, I just thought that was funny. Not exact. You can explain to us exactly to what degree people have crabs for Christmas. Uh, what type? I don't necessarily maybe need to know, but you know, thank you for um I'm sharing that. I'm just going to assume that he's referring to the delicious delicacy of crabs and lobster, maybe a little bit of crab cakes. I do really love crabs, the crustacean of the sea. They are delicious. And I could go for that today. Who wants to send some? We are just going to, we're just going to assume that that's what he meant. But he actually, uh, crabs for Christmas was his religion. And he used one of those um, custom icons, conveniently enough, the custom crab icon for Uh his religion. So. That was really cool. Um, he actually also was good enough to share his um, kind of his religious, uh, my religion screen. And in that, we kind of got a little bit of an insight into how he engineered a turn 284 religious victory. Um, so it looks like the pantheon that he founded was God of War. And the uh, God of War pantheon gives bonus faith equal to 50% of the strength of each enemy unit killed within eight tiles of a holy site district you own. Mm-hmm. Have you ever founded that pantheon, Kyle? I don't know. I have not done that one. I, I traditionally, um, um, I like the, the the festivities type of ones that gives like plus culture to some luxury things and the, mm-hmm. the plus food to luxuries. I t- traditionally go those. Um, maybe the ancient wonder building one or traditionally like the fertility or border growth. Those are my go-tos. Yeah. And likewise for me, generally, maybe a divine spark for the great people. Oh, but yeah. I can yeah. honestly say I have never founded uh, God of War because I guess I just um, I, I don't. I mean, what that implies to me, the God of War pantheon, what it sounds like is um, that you are a militaristic civ, mm-hmm. but you're a militaristic civ that's kind of on the defensive because it's within it's, it's any enemy unit within eight tiles of a holy district site that you own. So I guess it could be if you are expanding and conquering other cities and then absorbing them into your empire and, and then building holy site districts there, right. you could benefit there. But the way that that this functionally, um, I've always assumed that it works, is as kind of more of a if you are always under constant threat and you are able to strongly defend, you can um, get a lot of faith out of that because that's that bonus faith that you get from that is 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 pretty pretty great actually. So I can definitely see that as being advantageous. Yeah, um, you know what? How about people? If you if you use the God of War. Uh if you plug that in quite often, how about you write us in and let us know how you tend to use that? Because, you know, admittedly, we just said neither of us do it, but I'm curious to see if uh, w- which one of our ideas tends to be, you know, utilized more. Is it is it a defensive thing? Because that makes sense. Like you're saying, Dan, you know, you, you know, you build your holy site closer to your own cities and your territory, so you have to be within eight tiles of that. Or... Mm. 
you know, is it something where eight tiles is maybe enough? Like, is that traditionally like how close the other enemy city is to you that, you know, that eight tiles definitely covers it? Um, Mm -hmm. I'm curious. I'd love to know how people are doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then he also shared his first two beliefs, his uh, great profit beliefs. Uh, And those were work ethic, which is plus Mm -hmm. 1% production for uh, each follower, which I think is a pretty fundamentally sound uh, belief to found. I mean, I think that initially it's not going to be super effective because you start off with few followers, but as you get deeper and deeper into your religious play, you are just going to be getting just a crap ton of production from that. Oh yeah. So I see that as being super beneficial. Um, and then the second one he, he founded was one that I don't know if I just, I don't think I've ever founded it. And I'm someone who loves um, playing the religious side of the game. Um, and that's holy order. Uh, with holy order, missionaries and apostles are 30% cheaper to purchase. Um, hmm. I guess that just seems to me maybe like just a, a not a super flashy uh, belief, but one that I think functionally could have, I guess, an enormous benefit for you if you're playing um, for a religious victory. Because yeah, just thinking really. about it off the top of my head in my Arabia game right now, um, 200 faith to purchase a missionary early on. 30% off of that, I mean, that means that my uh, missionaries would only cost about 125, 130 faith. So wow. the difference in that actually could be a missionary, uh, a, a, an added missionary every four or five turns. And that could actually be of great benefit, both early game and later. It really, really would. I uh, I see. I love this religious system so much. Like, I love, love the idea of it so much that I'm going to have to finally devote myself to doing a game of it. I, why has why it taken me so long, Dan? Look at these well, fine not, listeners teaching me things. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think that maybe because it hasn't been... You know, people can just... I'll just say one thing. People can um, gripe about vanilla, um, about certain things about vanilla, and we've talked about the ad nauseum. But one thing they've done a great job of, uh, in my opinion, and from what I've seen in use, universal uh, user feedback, uh, is they've done a really, really good job with this um, religious system right out of the gate. There's a lot of complexity to it, and it actually feels fun to play. Oh yeah, yeah. So it, it looks, um, it looks way yeah. more put together and finished than what we dealt with in Civ Five, for sure. Yeah, I, I think that that's that's without a doubt. So anyway, regardless of that, um, our friend here, uh, Zoom WSU, and if you want to send us an email at civcastpodcast at gmail.com. We'll give you a shout out with your, you know, actual human name. Um, we give him props because he is the victor of the Civcast challenge for this iteration um, to the victor go the spoils. And uh, we congratulate him for that. So big props to him. What we're hoping to do with the challenge um, as we improve it and change it and look for ways to optimize it is uh, we might, if we keep getting... Uh, kind people like David submitting to Patreon. We might try and find a way where we can have Civcast challenges that uh, the rewards are more than just kind of arbitrary points on our part. Yes. We would love to do Civcast challenges where the rewards could be things like, I don't know, um, what, Kyle? Like Steam? Oh, Steam? Steam codes? Cards and stuff like that? Yeah, we yeah. could do, we could do, all co- there's, so uh, this is, if, so if anyone, I, I will put this out there and l- let me use this as my time to do like an open call for people again. I, I always do this sort of stuff, but, um, if you're someone that knows anything about kind of getting a hold of Steam codes to give out or merchandising in any way like that, you, we really want to give back to you guys because 
it's no, um, it, it means a lot. I can sit here and say that all day that like, hey, I value your listenership. Well, that's boring. But yeah, that actually means something, though. Like, I, I get that the words aren't so impactful because you hear it all the time. Everyone under the sun says it. But really, if it weren't for you guys being here and playing and, you know, telling us all this great information and sharing your your thoughts and your mindset on it, like, if we didn't have that information, this show would be super boring. Like, it would just be Dan and I talking to ourselves, you know, for an hour every week with no outside influence. So, And we do that enough on our own. Let's truly, truly. So every time you guys write in, it is an awesome thing. We love sharing it. It's why we make it such a big part of the show and why we're mm-hmm. going to go into listener feedback soon. So, I, you know, to circle back around, if you're a listener that is familiar with it, if you've done anything with, with like giving out content, shipping stuff, all of that jazz, if you know anyone that does – It'd be awesome if you could put us in contact just so that we could start getting that ball rolling because as we, you know, aim to grow as a podcast and stuff like that, really want to bring people on board. Um, I think a great, you know, example of that is like uh, our our awesome uh, listener slash, I don't even know what we want to call him. He's definitely a friend of the show, but Ricky Ede that we are always um, referring to, he it has been such a great uh, contributor and, you know, helps us out with our social media efforts. So we just want everyone to know that you know, we, we appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts and that we do intend to make this more of a, <clears throat> a giving back of physical items as well. So we'd love to do Steam Code giveaways. And I have some ideas for that right now. We'll just see where mm-hmm. those get flushed out and how that, how, where that takes us to, Dan, you know, one yeah. step at a time. And, and we are greatly appreciative, like Kyle's saying, of any feedback, constructive um, and even non-constructive. We'll take it all. We'll, uh, we'll take it all as a compliment. We'll try and share as much of it as possible. Yes, indeed. So, um, uh, Dan, do you want to talk maybe why we're going to do this next CivCast challenge or how that's going to work? Sure. We're going to take a week off from the CivCast challenge, give you guys a breather here, um, some time to recover from... Uh, we've, had some, we've had some marathon challenges in the last little while, so yes. I, I think it's safe to say that we can give... Uh, people a week off here to recover. Uh, we will be back at it with a new CivCast challenge, new parameters starting uh, next week. And what we might do um, is we might move the CivCast challenge into more of a monthly sphere as opposed to a mm-hmm. bi-weekly sphere. Um, because that, I mean, like we're completely re- understanding of people's busy schedules. I mean, hell, we have extremely busy schedules, both mm-hmm. of us. Um, and I know that some people, I've gotten personal feedback, uh, and we've gotten feedback to the Twitter where people have said, you know, they, they want to compete in the challenge. They, they want to complete it, uh, but they just can't find the time to complete a game within the two week time period. So, um, you know, in an effort to be respectful of that, an effort to try and get as many people participating as possible. And as Kyle said, in an effort to, uh, you know, try and make this more of a, whatever, more of a formalized. Yeah. Like machine. a well-rounded thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whatever. As, as we roll it out in a, and expand it in a more formal way, um, we'll probably end up making it into a uh, Civcast monthly challenge um, and kind of see how that works. So no Civcast challenge for this week. You guys are still welcome to uh, tweet at us with any of your interesting game stories, of course, at Civ underscore cast. Please do. Um, and uh, of course, please do. Absolutely. Or tweet at Kyle or myself. Um, and uh, next week, we'll have some new parameters for you. Yeah. Like Dan said, tweet those pictures over no matter what game you're playing. I love to retweet that content so people can see what you're up to and you know give you a follow as well. 
Uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, something slipped right off the top of my head, Dan. Oh, no. Oh, well. Um, oh, I was just going to say. It slipped off the top of your head? Yeah, it was right there <laughs> in the front, and then I lost right. it. But, oh, I was oh, going to okay. say, I was going to say, um, if you, I'd rather have maybe like a monthly thing where people could, I'd rather see more quality to the posts people were sending in than like quantity so for you guys you know and we've had some amazing stories submitted not everyone needs to do that by any means but you know hopefully with giving people a month to get stuff done dan was saying you know you guys have busy schedules we totally recognize that um and we don't want to ever make you feel stressed and like have to get this done in a short amount of time and worry about doing it so we'd rather you take your time submit things at your own own you know schedule and we'll come together with a much better product overall so um we look forward to that but let's dive directly into this listener feedback while we've got it sitting nicely in front of us yeah 100 percent um do you want to take it? Sure. I, look, let's trade cool. off. I'll, I'll do the first one. So our friend Gustavo, uh, for, for that was in the CivCast challenge just a second ago, he wrote in saying, hey, guys, I thought I'd send a couple remarks that I found during the last CivCast challenge with Poland. So he wanted to first touch on the Earth map. And sorry, I'm going to abbreviate this just a little bit here and there. But um, he said, like we mentioned on the podcast, the start ste- seems to be indeed very biased. I ended up starting six or seven games and always spawned in one of three exact positions france the united states east coast brazil so this piece of uh feedback is basically about what we were talking about on last week's episode of the show dan we were saying that uh, or i was saying that as congo playing on the earth map i kept getting stuck in the same exact location like i had the resources spawning in the same location next to my city that's how i immediately knew and it dawned on me i was like wait i was just here so um to gustavo's point you know there's a little bit of a a very biased start happening uh he also went on to say that going for the first one, I found that there's plenty of wine tiles all across Western Europe. Yum, wine. Hooray! Uh, Which boosted the growth of his cities when combined with God of Festivals. That's the pantheon that I was trying to tell you about, you know, five minutes ago, Dan. That's the one I like. The plus one food. Pantheon after our own heart, right? I know. Hey, so how does that work? You get plus one food for your wine? Um, I always have to order my food and wine separately when I go out to eat, but maybe I'm missing something here. But um, bum. But um, I know we're just full of the good jokes today, everyone. Rim just, shots. Yeah, Absolutely. that. You just send your lame jokes to civcastpodcastgmail.com. Uh, let's see what else did he go on to say? He said, on the other hand, since it takes uh takes a majority of luxury resource tiles around, his cities were lacking amenities. So. I kind of want to throw back for one second here and say, we're talking about this off air, but my last game, actually last night, I tried to stream again as China and I started this new map that looked pretty promising. Well, that turned out not to be the case. I was negative five amenities and locked in this terrible war with France, who, of course, she's over there sipping her wine every time she tries to rub it in my face. So I'm like, okay, I get this. I've just got pearls. I've got tons of pearls in the ocean, but I have no other resources. So uh, it was it was pretty hard. But um, so so basically what we're getting out of this is Gustavo saying that, you know, the Earth map has some huge benefits to it, but at the same time... The game being the way it is and you needing to have a little bit of everything, getting locked into a real-world start may not be the best thing for you. In the, uh, so, I don't know. That's that's a toss-up. Um, Dan, you really like the Earth map. Any any points of yours maybe contrary to his? Any rebuttals? 
Well, he mentions that, I mean, the map features of the Earth map become, you know, unrandom and static, and that's accurate. Um, but I, I see the thing for me is I just, I don't know why, but I, I really enjoy kind of seeing who ends up where and seeing what parts of real Earth are actually getting colonized and mm -hmm. what parts aren't. Like if you have that fluky Earth game where one of the civs starts out and uh, Oceania and they have to do um, they have to make do with Australia and Indonesia and all those tiles around there for their home base and you know you see um, that Africa has three civs but you know South America only has one and they get to take over all of the continent and stuff. I I just I, I have always traditionally and at least certainly with Civ Five had a lot of fun with that kind of setup. And, um, you know, I can certainly get on board with the fact that it's, there's nothing, once you figure out where you are proportionally as it pertains to the, the real world, it's not exactly random um, what you're going to see around you. But I don't, I mean, it's random who you're going to see around you. It's random, you know, um, it, it, it's random with kind of the distribution of, of where people are going to mm -hmm. be. And, and, and that part to me is still interesting. Um, and so I don't, I don't find it to be an indictment against the map that it's completely unrandom and static because I still, I still think there's a level of, um, inconsistency there and there's a level of, um, surprise that's still involved. So I, is it, is it possible that I, I know one thing that stands out in Civ for me personally is that I like that it kind of tickles the, um, the, the like alternate universe or alternate world kind of thing like a game like this is an alternate history sort of experience i mean that's kind of civ period but i mean i can see how that would really function in an earth map i i think that's why i was kind of bummed that as the congo i kept getting stuck in uh, actual africa you know i wanted to be somewhere else i wanted to be you know, Congo and North America. Like, why not do something funny or, or, or put me in Siberia? I don't know. I mean, I understand that we've got, you know, bonuses. Um, so it tries to give you start bonuses and biases and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, I want that alternate history. And um, maybe I need to try a different sieve. Maybe maybe I, that'll scratch my itch if I do a different sieve and try it. But I totally get it. I get what both of you are saying, and I, I think it makes total sense. Um, let's see. Gustavo also goes on here to talk about playing as Poland. He said, the Golden Liberty unique ability works amazingly if you're planning to invade a neighbor city. He built encampments and forts so that he could take, advantage, uh, take the tile directly next to the city center, allowing him to station troops as close as possible before declaring war, which is, Dan, one of my absolute favorite things to do in any Civ game is to take all the possible tiles I can next to that sieve and, uh, and and basically just, you know, have my artillery sitting the tile next to them or something like that. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing idea. Like you ranged you positioned within range of his city and still be in your own tiles. That uh, that seems pretty OP, pretty unbeatable. Uh, exactly. And I think you can do this if memory serves. I think you can do it with one of the great merchants, too. I think they let you take a tile next to your city or something like that. Maybe I'm thinking incorrectly, but I know. I think I stole someone's tile in Civ Six. I want to say I did this probably... Like in October or early November, I had a game where that happened. And if I'm totally crazy and losing my uh, losing my everything, you guys let me know. But I think that there's a way to do it, uh, aside from Poland. 
Let's see, what else? Mm-hmm. Gustavo said that he found out that the Golden Liberty uh, policy doesn't, or I'm sorry, the Golden Liberty ability does not work over districts that another civ already has put in place. So I'm guessing that means if um, if my neighbor puts, puts an industrial zone right next to me and I try to take advantage of Golden Liberty and steal that area, I, I'm guessing it just goes around the the district. The district doesn't come into my area or uh, or that that, or that uh, I'm not sure. How do you think? Probably. That that I mean, that's that's probably a good thing, though, because I could see that as being something that's abused. Because, say, for instance, yeah. you use Golden Liberty to take another encampment, and then you could just kind of that could kind of be a runaway, um, oh. whatever, a runaway train with the absorption of the other tiles. So, I think that that's probably uh, it's probably a good thing, right? I mean, I think that yeah. if you could absorb their districts, but with Golden Liberty, I think that that would that would be really difficult to counter. Yeah, I think you're very, very right there. So that probably is for the better. Uh, it is still cool that you can apparently take those wonders with it, as long as it's a completed wonder. The wonder has to be built. If it's still in the process of being built, it gets canceled. But I like the idea that, you know, if the pyramids are right next door and you just want to culture bomb them and take them within your borders, well, mm-hmm. that's fine. That's totally <laughs> fine. They're yours. Just keep them pulling. No one, no one's going to miss these, I guess. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Let's see. Do we maybe want to go on and talk about some Nick's feedback here? He wrote in some good content. Dan, do you want to do this or do you want me to? Either's fine. Sure. Uh, Nick sent us in an email and he uh, mentioned that he found the discussion about DLC and digital content to be fascinating and he wanted to join the conversation. Uh, First thing he says is he did not buy the special edition, which included the four other DLC. So he's in the same boat as I am. Mm-hmm. Um, this is because he was operating on the assumption they would squeeze a few scenarios in there and he'd never play them, <laughs> which wow, uh, is, is, yeah, is a pessimistic approach, but turned out to be the right one. We, no, I, I, I guess I'm coming from, Nick, you should have told me this months ago. You clearly were thinking better than I. <laughs> Come on, Nick. You got to look out for your Civ, for your civ <laughs> brethren here. Um, but... He brought up that we had a discussion about things like aesthetic updates, like skins for MOBAs, which I was talking about being uh, a veteran of League of Legends. Um, and he said, he said he thought that it was a bit unfairly characterized because personally, he does not use the same metric for deciding whether he should buy a piece of digital content or not. The metric is time played. So then he has a big paragraph here um, where he talks about how he's a huge consumer strategy game mm-hmm. um, with 1,800 and 1,900 hours respectively for Civ Five and EU4. So I bow down to you, Nick, on that, man. That is, yeah. Uh, that is something. What does that, that even come out to? Thing. I'm going to do the math. What is... 3,700 hours. Oh, what, what do we... Okay, so let's take 3,700 hours uh, divided by 24. That's 154 days. Yeah, we don't want to make you feel bad about stuff, Nick. All right? But that's a lot of time playing strategy games, my friend. That you is you should go into some sort of professional strategy well, industry. Well, or maybe maybe companies like Firaxis or Paradox can, should, can, should consider hiring a dude like that. Yeah, right? really. Like, they need okay, play we, testers, right? I mean, that sounds like it'd be a good good area to get into. Yeah, they need play testers who are integrated into the community. But I digress. Yeah. Um, he said he's he's bought all the DLC, every single piece of DLC for Civ 5 and EU4. And knowing both those games, that's a lot of money 
because mm-hmm. that's a lot of DLC. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that if he's into a particular game, he's willing to buy some aesthetic or feature that increases his enjoyment to the game. And I guess what he's referring to, um, as an EU4 player, I can corroborate that there are a lot of um, aesthetic things that you can buy in EU4, like the EU4 kind of um, unit aesthetic upgrades um, that cost like a dollar here or two dollars there, like basically unit packs which improve the look and make a more historically um, accurate unit packs, which actually look really cool, oh. which I love. And this is like, Europa you your, Universalis 4, right? Yes. You've got your, like, you know, your seven years war military packs, or you've got your papal states military packs, and aesthetically they're gorgeous looking and accurate. So I can understand why those would interest him. Um, you know, he says that he's willing to pay for new sieves. He's willing to pay for good maps yeah um because the high amount of uh hours played he said that he never played for example polynesia in civ 5 he bought them (laughs) but never played them which is too bad because i actually quite loved them i loved their uh their play style the kind of nomadic travel across the ocean play style um but he liked having them as opponents he also mentions a moba that he plays a moba called heroes of the storm which i've never played which i think is a blizzard moba it is um, it's their yeah. um yeah they're one that combines all of their uh different games together like it takes a you know your your notable characters from diablo warcraft uh starcraft and the rest and jams yeah. them all into one game you fight it out I wonder- I wonder if Blizzard is still pumping money into that with Overwatch doing as well as it is. Oh, that's, you know, I think that they are. I, I really yeah. think that they, I think that they're trying to put their money into Overwatch, Hearthstone, and um, Heroes of the Storm. Though, I admit, I haven't been playing any of them really readily, but it seems like they're diverting some funds away from Diablo, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. if you're if you're a player of any of those out there, I am too. <laughs> Message us and maybe we can get something going there. Yeah, but he does talk about how he owns every skin on uh, Sylvanas, a character who he plays in that game, and he enjoys doing it. He thinks if he's going to play a certain character for several hundred hours, um, why not add some variety to how they look? And, I mean, look, in terms of the, the skin thing, as someone who's played several hundred hours of League of Legends, I can corroborate that if I'm playing a character, like I think I played like, probably over a hundred games with a character like for my league nerds here, Maokai. Yeah, okay, if <laughs> if I am playing over a hundred games, I don't want to just keep looking at his boring ass standard vanilla tree skin. I can I can get on board with that. But I'm not sure that that that's necessarily the parallel we were trying to create with our discussion. Um, I think that you know I don't think that any of these things that they're that Firaxis is offering is an aesthetic upgrade. I think that um, the, the the mechanical kind of upgrades that they're offering are more what we were talking about. And we see Poland as a, as a mechanical upgrade, whereas I'm not necessarily sure that we see the scenarios as a beneficial mechanical upgrade. Yeah. I think, I think you're, I think you're getting to where we were, Dan, because I guess I just, you know, to chime in my two cents, I think that Nick is perfectly in the right for his own, you know, values and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and really that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about where you want to spend your money and to everyone that's going to be different. You know, this is kind of actually this whole episode weirdly boils down to like what you're going to put your money towards in life. But, um, you know, the idea being, like, I, for certain games, um, you and I were talking off air, I've been playing a lot of Company of Heroes 2. Uh, I really like that game. I've played it for six years now, um, even in its previous iteration. Uh, but 
It's one of those games where, though I've spent six years of my life playing it, I don't really find any of their cosmetic upgrades to be of value to me. So even if I yeah. spent another thousand hours playing that game, I don't think I would find those cosmetic upgrades still to be of any value. Now, that doesn't mean that Nick is wrong in any way, shape, or form. You know, That's absolutely no. fair if he wants to spend his money there, because... I have definitely spent money on cosmetic things in different games in the past. I mean, specifically going back to Blizzard for a second, World of Warcraft has sold some cosmetic things here or there. They sold like these little helmet things that you could put on your character that weren't, didn't have any stats to the item. They were just purely a cosmetic thing. I bought them to mixed levels of buyer's remorse. Uh, some of them I'm like, okay, that's cool. I still use it to some degree. Others, it's like, wow, that was a total impulse buy why did i do it i feel no value coming out of that and i think what we were trying to say last week is we find more value being we've i find as kyle here i find more value in a game that puts it towards mechanical changes like you said dan yeah i think a big one a big easy target to talk about like this because it's been called out over the years is um elder scrolls oblivion when it came out for the xbox 360 back in 2007-ish, something like that, eight yeah. maybe, it had varying degrees of DLC. One of them, the one most bashed, was horse armor, which you paid, I think, like $15 for, some very expensive price, for something that was purely aesthetic. It had no Oof. bearing on the game, and you Oof. were spending that kind of money, right? And yeah. then when someone releases, uh, you know, some DLC that's maybe $20 that adds a whole new, let's say, a level or, or, or looking at Elder Scrolls Skyrim, when they did their DLC, they did um, a pack called the Dawn Guard pack where it added new playable factions into the game. You know, it, it fleshed out vampires for them that could then change form. So they added these whole new mechanics to the game that came in DLC that ran roughly the same price where they had sold purely aesthetic armor in the past so yeah someone might walk away from that feeling very fair that that was fine you know if 15 is 15 it goes to support the developers and it goes to create more content that i want that's cool hey it is your money spend away i am not here to tell you how to spend it i think for a game like civ my point being i feel yeah like i'd, I'd rather see them put out valuable dlc in the term of mechanical changes that are actually going to affect my play style because at the end of the day it leaves me feeling good back to company heroes they do this all the time they have mechanical upgrades like they will sell a new faction like you can buy the british to play uh who don't really ship with the base game but then they also sell just dinky aesthetics here and there that are really dinky i mean they're not even like looking at your character sort of things they're a little worse <laughs> than that but um, yeah. so so it's just a spectrum, and I guess my point is, I'd personally rather put it towards mechanical, but that's me. Sure, and and just a, the last thought on that, and thank you, Nick, by the way, for the email. I mean, I think that I he also kind of mentions how um, there's kind of a devil's advocate argument too, mm -hmm. which is that if you are someone who doesn't put the five dollars towards Poland, it can be difficult for you to um, take part in something like multiplayer or competitions because you'll feel left out and you won't have the ability to play this extremely powerful sieve. Um, I mean, there are some there are some games like free-to-play games where skins are the only way these companies make money. Yeah. Like, again, I'm looking at League of Legends with something like that. Yeah. Anyway, regardless of that, I think that we uh, we agree that um, Poland, and we've talked about this for a couple of weeks, the Poland DLC 
has been worth the money to me. Um, I did read a post on forums this week that suggested, and this hasn't been corroborated, and I personally haven't corroborated it, because I didn't purchase the Vikings DLC. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was suggested by someone um, that uh, the city-states, the I want to say there's six, maybe eight city-states, present in the Vikings DLC, along with the three natural wonders, Iliafi, Oakle Giants, Causeway, and uh, Lise Fjord, um, that they are actually available in the base game without purchasing the Vikings DLC, which would mean that the Vikings DLC is $5 for an individual scenario, which is not not something that I am on board with. I mean, I think we meant this week or the week before. The only real reason I could see to spend the five bucks would be to to get those um, three natural wonders and eight new city-states, each of which actually sounds really cool and has some really cool benefits. But if you're going to tell me they're in the base game and all I'm paying $5 for is a scenario, I am going to be a lot less forgiving of Firaxis for making this an individual thing. 100% agreed. I am with you there, Dan. I don't love that myself. Um, I kind of used that as the validation for it last week. You know, I didn't find Mm -hmm. the scenario to be of any use, but I thought, hey, if it lets me bring these things into the game, then that's awesome. And the one thing Mm -hmm. I kind of want to touch on with the idea of... um, you know, Poland being a a DLC and unfair is, unless I'm wrong, and correct me people if I am, but I think that the way that works is if if I as Kyle have the Polish turned on and I own them, if Dan jumps into my hosted multiplayer game, I think you just can't choose to play them, but you can play around them, I believe. I think you're right, yeah, I think you're right. And if that's the case... And if, you know, if it really is unfair, I'd say just do the $5. You know, you're safe. Poland's a good one. Like, it's it's worth it. I, yeah. I do understand that mindset, though. Like, you know, it, it's a little, you know, just something harder to get. But I think they had great success in selling some uh, extra sieves in, in Civ 5. And I think that actually goes, um, it, wait, who was it? Gustavo or was it? Oh, I'm sorry. Was that Nick that said that he had the, the Polynesians but didn't play them? I'm sorry. Just, uh, that was Nick. Yeah, that, that was, was Nick. Nick. Okay, so so just yeah. like just what you were saying there, Nick. You know, ha- having the Polynesians not even playing them, but playing against them, you still kind of have that aspect of it, I guess. Um, truly, though, it's it's kind of however you want to do it in life, whatever you want to throw your money at. And I I think anyone's safe to go with Poland, but um, these wonders not really being added value to that dia- that scenario pack that we had to buy. That's tough. That kind of makes me a little bit more regretful about having the Viking scenario in my inventory. Yeah, and I can't corroborate that, Kyle, because I haven't seen any of these mm-hmm. city-states or any of these wonders in any of my games yet. But if I do see them, I'll let you know. And folks, if you know, then tweet at us or email us in with some feedback and let us know just to corroborate that, because I don't want to rail on for access for something that I have not confirmed. Yeah, yeah. So we will hold our final stance on that for later. Mm-hmm. Dan, mm-hmm. you have a little thing here next in our show notes that you might want to do. Is that right? Some wonders? Yeah. Oh. yeah I, wanted to talk, I wanted to talk a little bit about wonders. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk about... Some of the um, wonder buildings, not natural wonders, that we tend to gravitate towards in situations and some of the ones that we maybe see in this game as being um, less than advantageous in our early kind of experiences with it. Um, and I wanted to start with one that I thought was a little underrated and a little underappreciated yeah. that I try and get in virtually all my games, and that's Hanging Gardens. Oh, okay. So 
Hanging gardens, you get, uh, you, you have the ability to get after researching irrigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only stipulation is that it must be built next to a river. Uh, what hanging gardens does is it increases growth by 15% in all cities. Not a flashy, sexy um, bonus or advantage, but I have, like I said, I, I get hanging gardens in virtually every um, game if I have the conditions. Um, and the time to get it. And I really find that it helps my early game enormously. Like that 15% on growth, um, it's, it's, it can be a boomer bust for you, for sure. It, it, it helps my city expand and absorb more tiles, um, which allows me to purchase tiles further out, which allows me to have wider borders, which in the game styles that I play um, allows me to play a bit of a stronger isolationist type game which I love. Um, yeah. So Hanging Gardens for me, Kyle, is one that I um, am, a, am a huge advocate for. Well, that's interesting. I, I rarely build them, to your own point. I am your target audience, I guess, because I, <laughs> I have been avoiding it solely because I I guess I thought my cities were... Well, this this game adds a new stipulation, right? When you're, when you're trying to grow a city, you've got to worry about your housing now for the first time. Because in Civ mm-hmm. 5, you could just grow, 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 grow. And as long as you have the food to continue growing, you have very little limitations on how big your city gets in that regard. So it looked like a, you know, a surefire win to go with the Hanging Gardens in Civ 5. Civ 6, mm-hmm. and, and, and this is just, I haven't playtested this, so I don't know. I mean, you clearly have i'm curious how's that hanging garden working are you finding yourself hitting any sort of um housing cap sooner is it delaying anything how's how's that uh not that i've noticed like in any sort of disproportionate way i mean i just because i i do tend to especially early on in the game build a lot of builders and i tend to gravitate towards really trying to um early on consolidate things like farms and granaries and all of the bonus and luxuries around me so i don't find myself running into housing caps early i just find that city growth thing is being super advantageous for me building super cities um earlier on like my capital city and all is i mean and i'm sure this is the case with most people but especially in my games my capital city is is oftentimes the biggest and most badass city of mm-hmm. all the cities in the entire game for all the other civs combined because I just I pump so much into it and I make it such a such a bastion for my civilization um, and part of that is the early game benefits I get from Hanging Gardens. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um, I'm a big fan of. I guess um, there's so many wonders here that I love so much. Like I just I get I love I love getting some of these perks from them as well. I, I like the more unique the perk the wonder gives. Like that it just so mm. so the oracle for me I really love how it gives plus two great person points um for every like district in your uh, in your that city. So mm. to put down an industrial zone and get extra great engineer points is awesome. Um, it's mm. pretty early on. Even as a guy that doesn't go a religious game, I find that to be a cool one to build. Um, mm. I was trying to do it as China the other day because, you know, they get their bonus to these early game wonders. But unfortunately, I just did not have the production to keep up with something like the wonder, or I'm sorry, the mm. oracle. They were able to build it before I even had the chance. I did get the Great Pyramids up, though, which was funny because the Great Pyramids gives your builders a free extra charge. Mm -hmm. And Chinese builders already get an extra build charge. So my guys were naturally coming out with five charges per builder, which was very, very, very beneficial in the early game. Like It was was pretty stellar. Cool. No, that that, um, that sounds great. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm looking through this list here. I'm on the, the Civ Wikia, and so many of these wonders stand out to me as, like, really cool ones to get. There's certain ones that I just don't love, but, like, like the Alhambra, I love to get that one. The mm-hmm. Patala Palace is a great one. Anything that adds a policy slot really is something yes. I am racing towards headfirst. And I haven't personally experienced um, all of the wonders. I, I know that I haven't experienced some of the super late game ones mm-hmm. like uh, Sydney Opera House I haven't seen. Yep. Um, I did get Eiffel Tower in one of mine. And because I'm not someone who necessarily gravitates towards cultural games, mm-hmm. the Eiffel Tower's one bonus it gives you is all tiles in your civilization game plus two appeal. Um, oh, that's good for yeah. housing and stuff. Oh yeah, wow. for sure. I get, I get that, and for for neighborhoods and for culture plays, I get that absolutely. But as someone who doesn't really always gravitate towards culture games, that although I, the Eiffel Tower is gorgeous, and I, I love getting it just for having it in your city, yeah. the aesthetic of it. Um, that's my big Ben. I think I, big ben, the big yeah. big Ben is very powerful. Um, mm-hmm. With plus six gold per turn and plus three great merchant points per turn mm-hmm. and an economic policy slot. Oh, wait, mm-hmm. I used and too many times because I forgot it doubles your current treasury as well. So, yeah, it is an absolute yeah. just behemoth of it a map. It really is. Yeah. Uh, no nerves, please. You can take no this nerves. somewhere else. Although the doubling of the treasury can get absolutely absurd if you wait for the right time for it. Yeah, I agree. And that, if, if we did have to take one nerf to Big Ben, that would be the one that I could live without very easily. Cause, like, cap it, right? Yeah, that, and it doesn't, it doesn't really make me feel any different. Like, it, it kind of, it really doesn't change how I play. It doesn't excite me to build Big Ben. What really excites me are that ludicrous amount of great merchant points the amazing you know economic policy slot and six gold per turn is nothing to you know turn away from but the doubling no. of the current of the current treasury that's just a a bonus that like i said i could really live without it doesn't excite me it doesn't make me like oh i have to get it now no i'm going for those great merchant points really and the slot the yeah. policy slot yeah roar valley can't live without my Roar Valley either. Plus 30% no. production in that city and plus one production to each mine and quarry in the city. So I guess that's best placed if you have, um, I, I, as Germany in a couple recent games, I've been finding myself with some cities that are a majority of hills. Like they will just have rolling hills as far as, you know, like tons of tiles to our north or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that would be a great city to put a Roar Valley in. You know, if you have tons of hills, because um, each of those mines would get plus one extra production. So factor that in. And then on top of all of that, that city gets an extra plus 30% production, period. So, yeah. you know, you're rolling in it. No, uh, Roar Valley, I mean, I think that's one I've built once. It is, there are I, there are just so many ways that that can be beneficial to your sieve that both you see explicitly mm-hmm. and that function under the surface, which is kind of how production works, right? Yeah. It could just, you get it in there and you're not going to see any immediate bonuses like with a free wild card slot or, you know, free great musician or something like that. But, oh man, does it functionally benefit you so strongly? It does indeed. Um, for actually, me, as someone, oh, sorry, sorry for interrupting. No, no, you're fine. Just for me, one more I wanted to talk about. Um, there are a lot of religious and faith focused wonders in this game. Um, Mahabodhi Temple, Mont Saint Michel, Oracle, Poltala Palace, obviously Stonehenge, Hagia Sophia. There's a lot. And I think that's great. 
it does kind of um, give you a bit of, if you're playing a religious game, it does kind of give you a bit of wonder. I don't know what you want to call this wonder um, s- stimulation overload because I want them all and I don't know which ones are going to be the most beneficial to me. Ah. Um, I find Hagia Sophia with the fact that it gives you plus four faith. Um, missionaries and apostles can spread, spread religion one extra time. Oh, wow. Super beneficial. Yeah, that's a that's great a good one. one and yeah. Yeah, and I probably find the least beneficial one to be Mont Saint Michel because um, it gives you plus two faith. It gives you plus two relic slots, which kind of, eh. and then your apostles gain the martyr ability in addition to a second ability you choose normally. And martyr, I think we talked about before, is where if your um, your uh, apostles die in religious combat, they leave a relic behind. Right, we did. Um, yeah, which is. <laughs> Which is really cool. We talked about that it with uh, with Innocentius, which is kind of cool, like aesthetically and functionally, but um, or not even sorry, not functionally. It's cool aesthetically and as an idea. Functionally, it's kind of meh. Right. I could see yeah. that. I could definitely see that. I do mm. want to give one last shout out before we move on. We are running a little bit over time. I always say we're going to be early and or end early, and then look at us. We get into this great conversation like this. Absolutely. I knew that was going to happen. I could talk to you for the next like you know 30 minutes about these wonders because there's so many great ones but the last one i'm gonna hang my hat on is the great zimbabwe because it's Mm -hmm. um it's really a wonder that i have not had to worry about ai's taking ever um so i know that that's kind of safe in in the process of getting it very i think i've seen it taken by the ai once in my playthroughs um but it's just hard to get the correct situation for it because it, it must be built adjacent to a commercial hub with a market and also adjacent to cattle. So it makes mm. it, um, those two circumstances, I guess, just don't tend to happen as much in the games. I've, yeah. I've started to plot it out from an earlier stage. If I'm going to be really focused on my commerce, I'm like, okay, well, let me really get that spot saved. I even went so far in one of the recent games that I mentally made a note, didn't put a map pin, ruined the whole thing for myself because I forgot about it later. But um, what it gives you is plus five gold per turn, plus two great merchant points per turn, plus one trade route capacity, and your trade routes from the city get plus two gold for every bonus resource in that city's territory. So if that city is rich on... Um, if they're rich on resources there, that's extra money. Oh, Plus yeah. two gold it's, each one. Yeah, it requires so much advanced planning because those stipulations you're just talking about. But if you get it, it is a crazy beneficial um, economic wonder for you. Yeah, it really, really is. So love to hear your thoughts. How about we do that, everyone? If you have, tweet us. Let's do this. Tweet us your favorite wonder. Uh, let's say at most you pick two to three, but I want to hear your top favorite wonder in Civ Six. So tweet that over to at Civ underscore cast, and uh, we'll, we'll retweet some of those. I want to know what people are enjoying most. Dan, yes, I'm going to pass it to you, though. How about you take this away and give us the Civ of the Week and lead us into your quick uh, historical minute? Well, sure. I wanted to talk a bit about Arabia, uh, if we could, Kyle. Oh, yeah. I know that that's not a Civ that you uh, haven't spent a lot of time with, but I spent time with them in my main game that I was playing this week. And uh, I got I have mixed mixed observations on them, I guess I could say. Um, I talked about how The Last Prophet um, is, I think, functionally um, a solid, but obviously limited um, civ ability. For me, I didn't need it. 
um, because I fluked into um, having enough faith in an emperor difficulty game to get a profit on my own. But I mean, the fact that you get a guaranteed great profit means that you're going to be in the religious game regardless. Right. Uh, that being said, it it only it, it it serves you once when you get that profit, and then it it doesn't really functionally serve you. I do think it gives, if I'm not mistaken, I think it gives a a science a plus one science bonus in every city that's following your religion. So oh, that, wow. yeah, that's that's good. But plus one science. I mean, you need a lot of cities following for that to be something that accumulates into a lot. So it's kind of whatever. Um, the leader bonus for Saladin is righteousness of the faith, um, where worship buildings cost less faith to build and provide bonus science, faith, and culture. These worship uh, buildings are things like your, uh, for him, he's got the uh, unique unit madrasa, but these are also things like your Wat, your um, uh, synagogue, your gosh, I can't remember what the other ones are called, but you get these as um, worship buildings that you can have as one of your two founder beliefs, Kyle. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you've seen these, but uh, or you probably have seen these, but these are options you get as a second founder belief, and these cost less. Um, I believe that this is what it's referring to, and it's also, of course, referring to um, things like if you want to use faith to build a shrine or things like that. Oh, got it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh huh. So uh, the madrasa itself, um, it gives you plus five science uh, and it provides a faith uh, bonus that's equal to the adjacency science bonus of its district. It also provides plus one housing, plus one citizen, and plus one great scientist. So it kind of merges the faith and science game there. So I find the madrasa to be um, pretty functionally quite strong. Uh, the mamluk, which is the unique unit for... Um, for Arabia is kind of underwhelming in terms of its unique attributes. It heals at the end of every turn, even if it moves or attacks an enemy unit. And that mm -hmm. sounds like it'd be great. But from what I've seen with the two Mamluks I've, I've built and engaged in combat, the healing is not a hell of a lot. Um, oh, that's I don't, I don't see it. I mean, if, if you're, if you're in a battle where your Mamluk, Mamluk is a sitting duck anyway, it's not really going to save your bacon right. in any situation. So it's it's vulnerable to anti-cav, so it's it's super vulnerable to spearmen um, and pikemen, which is something that uh, I find the AI and barbarians tend to build at length. Too, yeah, they so. really do. Yeah, um, so I don't find the Mamluk to be super fantastic or super overwhelming. Um, so overall, my feedback on Arabia would be that they are um, kind of middle of the road for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I like the kind of amalgamation of science and faith games that you can play with them, but I do find the last profit to be limited in its functional usage and um, righteousness of the faith kind of along the same lines. Um, that being said, I am having, I am having fun with them. Uh, I got a really crappy map seed oh, no. that, yeah, that stuck me with no real um, luxuries around me Ugh. and with no access to the ocean and with no access to fresh water and with the Congo, like, forward settling the crap out of me. So that hasn't been super fun. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I guess with Arabia, it's been, it's been an interesting game. I would call them underwhelming, um, but that just might be because from a functional standpoint, their abilities are kind of limited in scope. Yeah. They're always in my games. Um, I don't, I'd say out of two out of three games that, uh, Arabia shows up here. So. Yeah. They're, they seem to always be there. Yes. So Dan, we talked about a little bit about Arabia. What's our historical minute. 
Uh, our historical minute actually has nothing to do with Arabia. Uh-huh. Um, funny enough. Last week, we talked about the three natural wonders that um, were included in the Vikings DLC. Uh, Eliafiokel, Leesfjord, and Giants Causeway. And Kyle, you mentioned how you knew Giants Causeway. Um, we talked a bit about how it was this uh, gorgeous geological formation in Northern Ireland. Um, and if you, it, I, I looked up the bonuses that these natural wonders give you. And I want, as a result of this, I really wanted to do my historical minute about Giants Causeway. So the bonus that you get for the Giants Causeway natural wonder is that land combat units that enter adjacent plots receive the ability Spear of Fion. And I know I'm pronouncing that wrong for my Irish friends. I apologize. <laughs> um, but what that gives your, uh, your land combat plus five, uh, plus five combat strength um, for these units that are adjacent within two tiles of Giants Causeway. And the reason that's cool is the, uh, the mythological story behind Giants Causeway. So according to legend, um, the reason it's called Giants Causeway is because uh, the columns themselves are the remains of a causeway built by a giant. And a causeway is kind of like a, 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 like a rock formation that connects two pieces of land. Um, and the story goes that there's this Irish giant um, whose name was uh, translated into English, basically Finn McCool. Um, I'm not even going to try and pronounce the Gaelic pronunciation. Love it. Because I'll, I'll fail at it. So his, his anglicized name is Finn McCool. And he was challenged to a fight by a Scottish giant called Benendonar, which I can do because I ha- I, my Scottish is decent. Um, and of course, if you know your geology, Northern Ireland and Scotland are not terribly far apart. Uh, Fionn, uh, Finn McCool accepted that challenge and he started to build that causeway across the North Channel, connecting Northern Ireland and Scotland so that these two giants could meet in the middle for their fight. Now, in one version of the story, Finn defeats Ben and Donar. Of course, that's probably the version that the Irish uh, cling to and, and would love. But, yeah. you know, being a Scotsman myself, I don't subscribe to that uh-huh. version. So <laughs> I subscribe to version two, which is in that version, uh, Finn hides from Ben and Donar when he realizes that uh, the Scottish giant is much bigger than he is. <laughs> then what happens is Finn's wife, Unach, disguises Finn as a baby and tucks him into a cradle. So when Ben and Donar comes for the fight, he sees this, this baby and the size of this quote-unquote baby who is you know, smaller than him, but still a giant. And he figures that whoever this baby's, knowing that, well, not whoever this baby's father is, he knows this baby's father is Finn McCool. And so he reckons that, uh, holy crap, if this baby is this big, then Finn McCool must be absolutely enormous. Wow. So he reckons that, oh, you know, I'm not going to fight someone whose baby is like two-thirds the size of me. So he uh, decides to, you know, retreat back to Scotland with his pride. <laughs> and uh, in an effort to make sure that he doesn't, uh, he doesn't have to engage with the giant of giants, he actually destroys the causeway in a bit of a scorched earth policy on his way back to Scotland. And that's why the land bridge doesn't connect Scotland and uh, Northern Ireland anymore. So uh, actually across the sea um, on the Scottish Isle of Staffa, which I've never been to, um, there are kind of identical adjacent basalt columns oh. um, at this place called Fingal's Cave. Um, so which kind of, they're not as, as grand as Giant's Causeway, but they look the same. So that's kind of where this, uh, Scottish Irish linked, uh, piece of folklore comes from. So 
you know, I, I adore Gaelic mythology, obviously being of Scottish heritage and having lived in Scotland for a while. Um, that kind of stuff is my jam. And um, this kind of kind of Scottish Irish um, link up in the folklore is really cool. Not so crazy about the idea of the Scotsman retreating in fear of the significantly right. taller Irish giant, but the story itself is uh, is really cool. That is awesome. And Fingal's cave is really cool. I pulled it up online here, and that looks awesome too. Wow, guys, do yourself yeah, a favor I, and look that up. It's just neat. Yeah, Fingal's those Scottish Isles, like on the on like the the Hebrides Isles. I, I've been around the Herbities Isles. Um, they are gorgeous. I've never been to Fingal's Cave because I've never been to Staffa because it's uninhabited. But, um, you know, if, if of course, I'm always going to advocate traveling to Scotland. But if you do go to Scotland, don't just stay in Edinburgh and Glasgow. Go to the north and go to these West Isles. They are something else, both culturally uh, as well as geologically. Awesome. 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 Thank you for sharing that historical minute with us, Dan. Uh, it has been a great episode today. We hope you guys found some cool value in all the stuff we've been talking about. And as always, we want to hear what you have to say. So, you know, remember the email is civcastpodcast at gmail.com. Shoot us your thoughts on this episode, on, you know, even ideas if you want uh, us to talk about something in the future for any segment of the show. You just send that our way. We love hearing about it. Um, again, we've got patreon.com backslash civcast set up. So there's a little video over there. You can check that out as I explain a little bit of how Patreon works and how, you know, any contribution you give is going to be a huge asset to us. Uh, also, if you need any links to the show or anywhere to find us online, you can just head over to kyledempsterstudios.com backslash civcast. That's where you're going to find your links to subscribe to the episodes. So if you want to do us a favor, shoot that link to one of your friends that you think might enjoy uh, hearing us talk all about Civ. And maybe if they want to contribute to something too, that'd be a perfect way for them to do it. Uh, you can find... I know we're taking a break on the CivCast challenge for this week, but we're going to have all the information for that up on our site next week as well. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, Twitter, that little thing that exists out there. I'm over there at Kyle Dempster 7. Dan is there at Dan the Max. And the show is there at Civ underscore cast. Make sure you use that um, when you're trying to send us pictures of your game. Make sure to tag uh, at Civ underscore cast. That way we can easily retweet your stuff to other listeners and they can chime in on stuff. And also, I mean, huge thanks to everyone that's actively making this a community. I want to call out here at the end of the show that whenever someone tweets at us, I've noticed a lot of people also chime in and they're like, hey, that's a really cool picture. Or my game was like this. Or, you know, I've seen a lot of interaction between fans. So that's really cool. Let's get this community rocking because it is you guys that we're here talking to and we want you to be as involved as possible. So thank you, thank you, thank you again for going that extra step. Uh, I said our email. Let's see what else. Oh, hey, that thing, iTunes, where you can, uh, you know, the, the, the place where you buy your music and your songs and stuff. Well, that's where the podcast is. And that's also where you can leave us a nice five-star review if you like the show. Uh, also, any of those five-star reviews that go up there, I'm incorporating those into the site in our nice little, um, what do I want to call it? Our nice little carousel, our little slider that that has people's um, positive reviews and all that stuff. So leave us something. Tell us how much you like the show, and you might see it go up on the website there with a little quote from yourself. So that would be awesome. And uh, Dan, I think that covers it for me this week. It's going to be a crazy month, so if I'm a little bit harder to get in touch with on Twitter, or I'm a little bit slower to retweet that retweet or tweet. Um, I hope you guys will understand why I'm busy with the move and all that. Uh, any parting words from you, Dan? 
Just two things. Once more, thank you to Dave for his Patreon contribution. We appreciate it greatly, dude. Um, and the second thing is we do have a uh, Steam group for oh, Sidcast, yeah. which is growing. Actually, I see people coming on and joining it uh, every week. Yes. That, I believe, is uh, just Civ Space Cast. Is that correct, the Steam group? I think that's it. I think you can easily yeah. find it just by uh, yeah. searching Civcast in the in the Steam group section, and it comes up pretty readily. Also, um, in the description below in the show notes, um, so when you are looking at your podcast player and such, it will have my Steam username and Dan's Steam username there. So uh -huh. you can very easily either friend us or if you click on our profiles, I know the Civcast group is my like featured group. So it should be really easy to find there. Yeah, absolutely. And add us and you can add some of these Civcast celebrities you keep hearing about. I know that Gus and a lot of these guys are on the Civcast group, so we can grow the community and really uh, meet some fellow Civ-obsessed friends just like us. Exactly. So until next week, everyone, just one more turn. You're listening to CivCast on the Kyle Dempster Studios Network. For more shows like this, visit kyledempsterstudios.com.